0: Hi, I'm Rick Hess, Director of Education Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute. And I'm Pedro Noguera, Dean of the USC Rossi School of Education.
1: Welcome to our podcast, Common Ground, Conversations on Schooling.
0: Two of us often fall on different sides of the big questions in education. But today, we're going to talk through some of the educational issues of the day in search for deeper understanding and sometimes common ground.
1: And Pedro, uh, today, Today, uh, we're going to talk about how the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the immoral uh, continuous bombardment uh, of Ukrainian cities and murder of Ukrainian citizens, uh, how that goes to how, our, what's going on in American education. How should schools teach about an issue like this? How should it inform our conversations?
0: I'm so glad to hear you frame it this way, Rick, because I didn't know if you had uh, bought into the Tucker Carlson uh, kind of uh, view that Putin's really a, a good guy. And uh, so this is encouraging. Um, you know, it is terrible what's happening there. And, and we're seeing it live on TV and we're seeing over a million refugees now already uh, out of the country. So the devastation of that country is just uh you know, something to behold, and it'll impact that that nation and the, and the people there for years to come. But it's also important, I think, to point out that you know we were in a war in Afghanistan for over 20 years, and many Americans didn't even know, um, acted like it wasn't a war because their kids weren't fighting there, and and we weren't affected by the atrocities and the devastation that Afghanistan is going to live with too. So. You know, it's interesting because we got a war going on in Yemen right now. That's equally um, a devastating, you know, war is bad, period, um, uh, for the particularly because it always affects the most vulnerable people, the worst. But the media coverage is not even. And uh, we know a whole lot more about Ukraine right now than we do about these other conflicts, even the ones that we've been in.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a bunch of dimensions to this you know, one is this seems also to be the first war of kind of the media age in which we're not involved. I mean, I can remember watching the bombardment of the first Iraqi war back in 91 when we were doing Desert Storm. Uh, I remember the CNN coverage of Iraqi invasion in 2003. And, you know, there we were the good guys and it was high tech. And I don't know about you, but I felt, you know, I, I, I felt, morally, um, I, I felt like the invasion was morally justifiable. Whereas watching this thing go on, a uh, hostile nation uh, simply stomp into a nation of 40 odd million people, uh, indiscriminately kill, um, watching these videos, and, and, you know, especially like in, this, in a YouTube age, um, it, 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 it's also just a jarring kind of experience to be able to see all of this
0: Kind of firsthand on your phone or your computer monitor. Yeah, no, no doubt. And um, I, you know, I've been really impressed by the bravery of the the Ukrainians, particularly the president, in standing up to the Russians. I, I don't think Putin bargained on that. I think he thought it was going to be an easy uh, win. Uh, the Ukrainians will welcome them as their brothers and sisters, and uh, it'd be over. Um, I think the sanctions are are going to hurt them, and um, and he may have. Totally miscalculated, but again, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I've, I've talked to veterans who were in Afghanistan and who were in Iraq, and they don't talk about the war as a clear moral victory. They mm-hmm. talk about the trauma that they experienced, not only for seeing their own comrades fall and get injured, but for seeing the devastation to the Afghan and the Iraqi people, and that's a perspective that I think many Americans don't have. You know how hard war is. On the lives of those who have to experience it directly, we're seeing it in Ukraine, but we have um, you know veterans who have seen it firsthand and know directly um, what are the consequences of war.
1: Well, you know, and one of the things that points to is you know the, the, the right the coverage was twenty four seven on CNN during the initial aerial bombardment of Baghdad. Say, or, and you know, and we're watching that right now, um, by the six month mark much less the six-year mark, everybody had moved on. Right, You could go weeks of reading news coverage and barely notice that we were at war by you know 2015 um, or something in Afghanistan. And it, right now, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is very much this highly visible, real-time thing. Uh, if it turns into a guerrilla uh, combat operation six months out, how much will we actually be even thinking or talking about? So. I guess one question is, what does that mean for like how schools should think about this? Like how how schools, there's talking about it in the first blush of the kids can't avoid this reality if they're anywhere near an open device, but also when a war goes on for 20 years,
0: how do you talk about it and teach about it? Right. And how do you get people to understand, you know, the history behind it? Because, you know, you can't really understand this war unless you understand you know, how the Soviet Union fell apart. What is the historic relationship between Ukraine and, and Russia? Um, what does NATO, if anything, have to do with this? And these are concepts and, and a history that a lot of American kids are not well, um, let's say, I would say well, well-educated because a lot of Americans are not well-educated. We don't understand geography real well. We didn't understand that Russia already took Crimea and was already in Eastern U- Ukraine for several years now. Um, so, I think for teachers who are watching, it's important to contextualize, to historicize what's going on, and then to keep coming back. Because I think, as you said, we have a short attention span. And uh, if, if this goes on for a while, um, then the next big thing in the news will um, replace it after a while, and we'll forget that this war is continuing.
1: You know, I mean, you know, we, we were both social studies teachers once upon a time. So, you know, a lot of, the, a lot of these kinds of conversations always I think, land uh, very practically for both of us. So, you know, I taught, um, I taught world geography in Louisiana way back in the day. And, like, you know, one of the conversations when we talk about um, core knowledge and whether it's important that students know stuff or whether they can just Google it is, you know, to make sense of the Russian invasion. I mean, you need to understand the geography of the old Soviet Union. You need to understand what the 15 republics are. You need to understand what Georgia is, or Kazakhstan, or Belarus. So, I mean, you need to know these things, and they need to be physical representations on a map. You can't Google that. Um, you need to understand the uh, Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact and why the you know and the why the why the poles are so incredibly nervous about Russian expansion. Uh, and, and so, for me, partly this goes to some of this stuff I think we talked about in the book. Um, we get some of these either-or debates. Is is it important that students know facts, dates, countries, or? And I don't think that's all they need to know. But my gosh, you have to know that stuff, or you're staring at what's happening on the screen right here, and you're completely at sea.
0: I, I, I agree entirely. I, I think that um, you know again, you and I might be outliers here because we I actually like this stuff. I like learning history. I like geography. But you know, at a certain level, if you don't know this, you are become almost illiterate. You can't make sense of what's going on around you um, and certainly can't understand a war. Uh, my daughter, who's um, just about to be 10, was kind of aware of what was going on because she can't help but hear me listening to the news. And she says, um, do we have to worry about a nuclear war? And I said, well, um, possibly because uh, <laughs> Russia has nuclear weapons. I think it's unlikely that they'll use them. But, uh, you know, she was curious because she knew this war was going on. She knew or had heard, I guess, in school that Russia had nuclear weapons. Um, And she knew enough to ask, um, what's the level of concern we have to have here? So I I think this is an opportunity to deepen the understanding because like you, I think that the content of what's going on really does matter. And you can't make sense of this simply by um, watching the news every now and then. you really got to open a book and understand the geography and the history behind this conflict.
1: Yeah, I and mean, I think, and so for me, this is a limit, a limit of kind of the current events mindset. Like, I'm not opposed to schools wrestling with current events, God bless, that, that's a good thing. Um, but if you've never heard of Ukraine or Russia, and then we're going to spend a day talking about, you know, what we're seeing, well, what we're going to see is upsetting and painful. Okay. But I don't know that you've actually learned much. You've you've empathized, which is fine. But it seems to me that schools also have to be in the learning business. And that means kids need some architecture uh, on which to lay the video they're seeing when they hear these terms. So, in some sense, if you're the first time you're hearing about Russia and Ukraine or the Cold War is when you're having a current events conversation about the invasion that happened, um, in some sense, schools are too late because kids don't have any of the framing they need to make sense of it. And it feels to me like some of our civics wars are losing this. There's either folks who are in favor of like relevance and action civics and engagement. And then there's the folks who are, that's all terrible. We need, And I'm like, well, look, I'm fine with this. So long as this is about applying Um, an empirical, factual, grounded understanding, and then kids arguing and wrestling with how to make sense of
0: what they're seeing. Yeah, so you opened the door to this. So I got to ask you, um, you know, there are several states now saying that we should be able to sue teachers that teach subjects that are upsetting to kids. (laughs) Seems that conservatives suddenly um, have very little backbone for upsetting subjects. So war is upsetting. Um, um, The Holocaust is certainly upsetting. Slavery is upsetting. Um, I think kids have a right to learn it, um, and I think that uh, we, teachers have a responsibility to work through the emotional part of learning about such upsetting parts of our history and, and of current events. But um, I'm just wondering what you think about these laws being adopted that might make it illegal if somebody, if some parent says, my kid was upset today because they learned about um, kids being bombed in uh, Ukraine. So
1: well, the first part, I'm with you. Kids are going to get upset. Tough, tough noogies. If learning about the Holocaust or learning about Russian brutality in Ukraine is upsetting, sometimes education is upsetting. On the laws, there are different descriptions of the laws. To the extent that a law says what you just sketched, I'm with you. I am going to line up with you that those laws are bad and have no place, uh, you know, in American education and should not be written by by conservative legislators who I would otherwise agree with on things. Um, That said, my my concern is that some of the reporting I've seen on these laws, um, and again, I don't know that this applies to all of them. Some of what I've seen uh, is to me a mischaracterization when I've read the laws. That, for instance, the laws about divisive concepts in Virginia, for instance, which I know well, uh, says that teachers are not allowed to ascribe, um, are, are not allowed to impute that students of one ethnicity are oppressed or oppressors based solely on their ethnicity. And that that gets described as upsetting, but it's not necessarily a fair description. It seems to me that we can talk about legacies of racism in Jim Crow and talk about the fact that, you know, black, black Virginians were oppressed without say, without labeling students in the classroom today, oppressors and oppressees. Um, but to the extent that you could point to me and say, Rick, look, here's what state X passed, and it says that parents have a right to sue if kids are upset, um, to the extent that that's, oh, wow, that's what they have actually written to state law, I'm 100% with you, um, that, is not, that is not an appropriate kind of guardrail uh, for what, how teachers should wrestle with important content contact in schools.
0: So, you know, I, I, I get your point. You know, we don't always know from the way the uh, media reports on these laws, how accurate they are, uh, but they are taken off. Uh, and, and several states, uh, state legislatures, anything time something is done that quickly, it's often done poorly. Uh, that's my concern. <laughs> so I, I'll give you an example of how it could backfire. My daughter, again, using her as, a, as an example to yep. make a point, Said during their uh, some lesson on Black History Month, she said, "I think the white kids in class may have felt uncomfortable when we started talking about slavery." I said, "Why?" She said, "Because some of them might have, you know, felt that like they were um, guilty." And I said, "Well, the teacher should have explained that you weren't, you you, weren't <laughs> you're, you know, uh, that, that you're that this happened in the past." Right and and kind of this in a way for kids to learn about it without there being a sense of blame, you know. So it, it raises the question of um, how do we deal with uh, and at what ages do we deal with uncomfortable subjects with kids? Um, how much you know sh- is this an appropriate uh, discussion for fourth graders? Mm-hmm. How about second graders? You know, when do we introduce these topics? Um, clearly, high school should be fair game, but before that. But the problem is, if we wait until high school to introduce um, history <laughs> and and geography, it uh, might be a little hard for them to catch up. So I, I don't want to pretend that this is easy or simple. Yeah. It's complex, and that's why I worry about these laws that don't acknowledge the complexity of actually teaching kids important topics like history. I, I you know could not could not agree more. I think you just said really
1: well. Um, if Simply broaching the topic of slavery or Jim Crow or the Holocaust or, uh, you know, limiting or or, or the prohibition of women's suffrage. Um, If these make some students uncomfortable, that's unfortunate. Um, But, you know, there's a lot of things. We go to movies that make people uncomfortable. We like watch TV shows. Um, But I think you're right. It's the teacher's job to to, to, to make sure that these conversations aren't about students hurling accusations at one another. That teachers are creating, you know, we, we saw this play out with the debate, for instance, over um, Mouse, uh, the graphic novel, um, you know, award-winning graphic novel, which I think you know is powerful. Um, and what people forget was that the school boards that was, was wrestling with this was not trying to ban it from the schools, which is how it got portrayed. It was really a question about what grade level it should be assigned to. And I would feel comfortable saying that I think saying we do not want to assign Mouse to fourth graders in our school district is entirely appropriate. It deals with concentration camps. It deals with atrocities. Um, I think it, generally speaking, I think it is appropriate for high schoolers. In middle school, I could, um, but so I think what we, again, you know, one of the things you and I have talked about a lot in the book and in these conversations is the importance of giving each other a little bit of grace, extending a little bit of benefit of the doubt. And It's it's hard to do, as frustrated as we can get with each other. But, you know, rather than assuming that somebody who's worried about age appropriateness, the real agenda is I don't want to teach about slavery or I don't want to teach about the Holocaust. And when folks hear people say it's important we teach about it, asking how do we do this in ways that are appropriate for six year olds or 12 year olds that help them think about it that aren't about us venting our spleens or pushing our agendas. Um, I I think that's where we, and so I guess, you know, what's interesting about the the Russian invasion here is how do you think about that? Like what what, what are the differences between how you would talk about that with sixth graders versus how you talk about that with high schoolers?
0: You know, I I think for kids, um, to the degree that they can see it through the eyes of another child, they can get it much more quickly. That's why a book like Anne Frank is so powerful, because a lot of kids can relate to Anne as a child who was in hiding during um, uh, World War II and in and, and fear of being sent to the camps, which ultimately happens. And so, if teachers can do that, if they can find ways to, I don't you know, I had a teacher who's in Ukraine who sent us pictures of kids who are in, um, in bunkers right now. And, uh, you know, sharing that with kids, imagine what it would be like that you're in a bunker because you're afraid that you could be bombed so that kids can situate themselves and see themselves in that situation and therefore understand it differently, simply because what worries me sometimes is that when we don't, we can't make that human connection, Um, we lose something about understanding history. Um, and understand something like a war that's occurring right now. But let me ask you this, because suppose you had Russian parents here in the United States who said, we don't like the way you're teaching about the war because we think that Russians are right. Ukraine belongs to us and we have a right to go in. Should schools have to teach differently because Russian parents are offended? You know, I mean, that's a hell of a question, man.
1: (laughs) Right? I'm sure all the listeners have already made the connection. But this is obviously the conversations we're having about things like critical race theory. That's right. Wrestle with these issues. Um, and look, I, you know, this, this is, you know, it, it's funny because 15 years ago, this was very much the conversation about schools of choice. And what, uh, you know, particularly schools of choice that were Islamic centric And, what, you, know. Um, you know, for me, I think there is a distinction Going back to what we talking about before, um, I, I think schools should not, I, I don't think parents should be in the business of telling schools you can't teach it about slavery. And I don't think legislators should be in that business. I do think it's appropriate to say um, that teachers should not be promoting personal agendas. Um, and that teachers should not be saying that uh, I, think, uh, I think, you know, those of you who are white uh, need to acknowledge your privilege and need to apologize to your classmates of color. I don't think that's an educator's job. Um, I do think it's entirely appropriate to say, let's delve deeply into Jim Crow and understand exactly what that meant day to day in terms of uh, prohibiting families from, from from growing wealth, from being able to live where they wanna go, from being able to go to good school. Like for me, there's a difference there. And similarly, uh, I think the Ukrainian-Russian analog is, I don't think teachers should be telling their kids the Russians are you you students of Russian descent are evil, Um, and I think it's fair for parents to complain if teachers are way are are allowing their own reads to color how they're talking about it in the way that like you and I would right here out of a classroom environment. Um, I think that would be fair game for parents to say, "Don't vilify my child." I don't think parents have a right to say don't teach about this or I don't want you talking about these issues.
0: In our book Rick and and in some of these conversations we've had we've talked about the kind of moral responsibility schools have for teaching ethics not teaching religion but ethics right and wrong and uh, you can't look at a situation like the one occurring right now in Ukraine and not take an ethical stance as you see civilians um, having their lives uprooted and dying in many cases. And I think that, that adds to the uh, challenge facing our teachers. How do we deal with the ethical dimension of teaching history?
1: Yeah, no, no, I, well, so, so there, I mean, determine what should be, for instance, um, you know, I, Texas for, is in the middle of a fight right now um, about efforts to restrict uh, transgender surgery uh, for youth. And I would say that, look, I mean, there is, you know, these are incredibly complicated questions and I don't actually know day to day exactly how I feel about them. But I certainly think uh, there is real evidence that these can be very harmful for some children uh, with lifelong consequences. And that some children are doing it not because it is carefully thought through, but for a variety of forces or issues in their lives. and where, you know, when it's suggested that schools should talk about this in that way, many of the folks who say, parents should have suddenly say, no, 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 that should not be part of it. Uh, similarly, my colleague, Ian Rowe, likes to talk about the data on differential outcomes for children raised in two-parent households. And he argues that the success sequence, uh, Ron Haskins' Bell Sawhill at Brookings, that should be part of what kids learn, that if you finish high school, and get married and get a job before you have kids, it, your likelihood of winding up in poverty is remarkably small. That Ian says, look, this, I'm not ad- talking about advocacy, I'm talking about empiricism and making sure kids are... And lots of folks who talk about the importance uh, of you know, exposing kids to evidence say, no, 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 that has no place in school, that's an agenda. So I do think some of, some of the lines here are a little blurry, you know, and, and again, um, it, 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 part of what's tricky is that I I broadly agree with what you're saying, but I feel that you know none of us are entirely consistent about how we apply that standard uh, across areas, and given that, you know, that's that's something that I think we need to wrestle with.
0: Yeah, I mean, because this is these are really complex issues, and uh, I, I I I agree um, that I don't know if there's a a rule, um, you know, that we can just apply consistently um, that, that works to, to address it. Um, I just saw a study, you know, going back, you said, okay, these are facts. So a study that just released, gay men are outperforming straight men academically uh, across the country. <laughs> uh, uh, so what does that say about uh, the way masculinity gets constructed? Uh, so, you know, I, these issues, uh, you know, our society is in a lot of flux right now. Around issues of gender, um, you know, neither you nor I declare our pronouns, <laughs> uh, but that's becoming increasingly common because there are a lot of people out there who choose to non-gender pronouns uh, to identify themselves. Um, I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. Um, and whether or not we should allow five-year-olds to um, uh, change their gender or um, by you know through operations is another thing. But I think um, trying to understand what's going on uh, around us um, in our society and in the world is an essential part of education. And kids have a right to an education that opens their mind instead of closing it.
1: I think that's right. But but again, then it's interesting that, you know, it's kind of like, you know, when we talk about school choice, folks on the right get very excited about empowering low-income families and folks on the left are very hesitant. And when we talk about, uh, you know, federal assistance or food stamps. Folks on the left say, folks should be empowered to spend it how they see fit. And the right gets very hesitant about carte blanche. So in many of these walks of life, uh, this notion that we ought to be you know, giving students information so they can make their own decisions, um, the right and the left uh, have different points of discomfort as to what, what constitutes as evidence uh, and belongs in schools. In much the same way, I think we had different, level, di- di- different constructs about what ought to be considered science uh, when we were arguing about school closure and masking.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess we didn't do a very good job of, of, of finding up answers to this stuff, except that we do think kids should learn about this war <laughs> and understand the historical context.
1: <laughs> Actually, one, here's, here's one, one thing that has struck me throughout, and I'm just curious, let's close with this. Well, why don't you get the last word? Um, one of the things this has reminded me of uh, both, uh, you know, China, the, the Olympics and Beijing's behavior over, the, you know, in recent months um, and the Russian invasion uh, is the importance of civilizational self-confidence mm. that, if, you know, on the right, you know, you mentioned Tucker Carlson, uh, you know, of de- de- excusing and cuddling up the Putin uh, folks on the right who, you know, bad mouth and run America down. Folks on the left, who talk about America as this horrific slaveocracy, and it seems to me, um, I, I am firmly convinced that America has been a massive force for good uh, in the history of the world. That you know, if you look at the history of the last century, and America was not being America, we, we we're we have plenty of blemishes and we'd make plenty of missteps, but I think on the balance, we've been an immense force for good. And I do think like the Russian invasion here is a reminder of how essential it is uh, that America be here to play its role and how much we instill students with confidence that they are part of a good nation, of a great nation, and that they should always try to make it better and they should always try to do the right thing, but that we must not allow them to lose faith in the American project. I don't know. That, that, that's on my mind. I'm, why don't you take us out? Just curious how you think about that.
0: You know, um, you brought up the Olympics. And, and one of the things I always think about when I watch the Olympics is how diverse the uh, U.S. Olympic team is. You know, we get people from every country in the world who um, represent the United States. And that's part of the reason why we are so strong as a nation. That has to be reminded, people need to be reminded of that. It is our diversity that is a source of strength. And, and that's what makes, uh, I think, America a unique place. And, uh, But with that diversity comes conflict and tension. And uh, it's not always um, that we are a cohesive nation. Um, but that's part of the work of democracy to do, it's figuring out how to live together um, and, and, and make the democracy work for us all.
1: The two of us have much more to say.
0: But uh, we're out of time. If you're interested in hearing more, check out our book, A Search for Common Ground, Conversations About the Toughest Questions in K-12 Education.
1: Thanks for listening to Common Ground, Conversations on Schooling. And thanks
0: to our producers, Tracy Shera and Wesley Armstrong. You can subscribe to Common Ground on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a review. And feel free to let us know what topics you'd like us to discuss by sending an email to podcast at AEI.org. Thanks for
0: joining. Until next time. Take care, buddy. Take care, bud.